How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and friends beyond the binary, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> Tom, that was so great. That was so great. Our previous guest will be really pleased that we're changing the opening format. Um, as we should be, you know that was a, that was a really uh, important show that we did a few nights ago. So a couple of weeks, a week ago, this was, ago. yeah, but I believe it was two weeks ago. But it still it feels like yesterday because it's just getting more and more uh, topical. It is, it is. But uh, but I appreciate that and um, great introduction. How's your week been? My week has been uh, not bad at all, Doctor Joe. I've been enjoying the warm, if rainy weather. I actually love it when it's rainy and sixty. You know, I feel I feel it's bracing. I feel like a like a pirate. I don't know. It's so funny you say that because I I love it when it's any weather in in my sixties. Because it's oh it's, uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, speaking of pirate <laughs> and weather, I uh, I will actually be. I'm excited because I'm heading to Puerto Rico next week next tuesday san juan from the uh actually i'm not going to give the dates away i don't get i don't want to get ambushed but uh, i haven't seen a palm tree in about five years and i'm very excited to just point and look there it is that's so great it's gonna be lovely for you um well deserved well deserved vacation it really is but it does remind me did you know that um it costs three dollars for a slice of pie in Jamaica and two dollars for a slice of pie in the Dominican. Yeah, those are the pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so actually, we are talking about some serious stuff tonight. This is a, a global. We really are in the midst of this crazy global crisis. I mean, we've got we've got all this tension here in the United States and this huge division between groups. And now there's a war going on where, and, and, go on. Well, it's a lot of us are eating humble pie because for a month up to it, I was laughing it off. Like, oh yeah, this isn't this a story every year where, you know, Putin's, you know, doing a saber rattling. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, they're, they're just going to egg it on, you know, because Putin yeah. is not a man I have closely studied, hmm. uh, but I've never, I never envisioned him to be irrational. Mm-hmm. And this is a very irrational action, it seems. It sure seems that way. It sure seems limbic. And yet there may be something prefrontal and contrived about it. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert in war, but we, we are really lucky to have an expert, somebody who's been there, who's, who's served our country. So Tom, can, can you introduce our guest for tonight, please? I would love to, Dr. Joe. So longtime friend of the show, graduate of Stella Adler Studio, friend of Brendan Mulhern. Dr. Joe, that's your son-in-law. Yes, it is. And army veteran who has seen tours of duty in both Iraq and Afghanistan. 
and is now a professional actor in New York City. Welcome back, Patrick Troybrand. Thank you. Yay, yay, Patrick. Thank you for the intro, Thomas. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I'm just wondering how um, how are you doing as uh, yeah. progress here? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I will say the same way I've been answering that question for a long time now. I think considering everything that literally every person on the planet is going through right now, uh, tougher than uh, normal times, I guess. Um, I am doing, I consider myself blessed, you know, and I think I'm doing pretty well here in Brooklyn with my wife and my little black cat. Um, it's a very dark time in the world right now. And, you know, folks know that I just released my latest book, Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach. And I, I'm really worried, worried about what's going on in the world because there is enormous disrespect. There's enormous anger. There's fear. And I worry that it will turn into depression and people will just shut down and be indifferent and say, there's nothing we can do. But I, I am really curious, Patrick, from, from your point of view, um, maybe, maybe you could just refresh for some of our listeners a little bit about your history and story. And sure. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, yeah. And I wanted, I did just want on that point of, um, I certainly appreciate, uh, being called a, an expert and I would say yeah maybe and there are a lot of aspects that I'm very well versed and educated in on uh, the aspect of war and going through war and combat and, and whatnot but um, I do also want to stress that every every situation is very unique and every you know uh, um, every crisis war everything is is very unique to the individuals that experience it and that's part of what i want to kind of get deeper into in uh with y'all tonight but yeah so to start with um uh i so i started my uh, uh army career in 2004 after graduating from high school uh left for basic training three weeks after graduating um i enlisted in the army as an airborne infantryman. So I uh, went through army basic training, infantry school and airborne school and uh, graduated from all that in 2004, uh, uh, November. And I was stationed at Fort Bragg with the 82nd Airborne Division. So that was November, 2004. In February, 2005, I was off to my first deployment to Afghanistan, uh, spent 13 months in Afghanistan uh, came back to the United States for a year, then went back, then went over to Iraq for the first time for a year, back to the States for a year, back again to Iraq for another year. And then I got out. Um, I was, like I said, airborne infantry. Um, I rose to the rank of sergeant uh, before I left. Um, and I guess that's, that's about uh, the glossing over of it. Um, yeah. What is the airborne infantry? Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, paratroopers, airborne infantry means that we are the uh, guys who jump out of planes uh, and parachutes made very famous in World War II. You know, uh, the Band of Brothers series is all about the first American paratroopers. Um, so anyway, the idea is that your infantry people, your foot soldiers who jump out of the plane, uh, 
in order to quickly secure uh, uh, enemy territory or occupied territory. Now, with that said, that is an asset that we had, a capability that we trained for a lot. Um, I, I did a lot of training jumps, you know, um, uh, but I never jumped into combat because it was never really necessary with the type of operations that uh, we were doing. Um, I was on trucks, Humvees, or marching around on, on our feet for it, so. Yeah, I think that's a blessing, really, in a way that you didn't have to put yourself at, at that risk. It must be quite an experience jumping out of a plane, even in the best of times, and then into a war. Like, whoa. Yeah, well, you know, um, not to digress, I guess, too much into it, but I will say with the mindset that I had at the time, being a, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old, um, testosterone driven kid <laughs> um you know you kind of want you know it's kind of a, a rite of passage to jump to have a combat jump so you know you kind of have this feeling if you're in the airborne and you're doing the stuff anyway you might as well get the full glory of it and get the, <laughs> the mustard stain what they call it and that's a little gold star in the middle of your parachutist badge that's what they call your little mustard stain if you made a combat jump which very few of us have but that yeah so you know it, it all falls into the i have to say toxic masculinity of you know uh training for uh a very deadly sport a deadly sport mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. tom what do you think of that phrasing a deadly sport well i think it's appropriate i i, I do think <laughs> Patrick, you, you've made the deliberate choice of words, kids. That's, a, that's the draw for a lot of people enlisting is that the promise of the adrenaline rush. You know, we're seeing that right now I, um, with uh, the call to arms of the U at, in Ukraine. Um, mm. You know, we saw that. We see that in, in all these foreign engagements. Um, foreign fighters, you know, and, and Americans wanting to, um, you know, take the plane trip all the cost and the investment to get themselves over into a battle when uh just purely logistically you could take all of that money and fully support european foreign fighters that are a lot closer to the engagement and maybe have a lot more at stake you know instead of uh yielding to your own sense of adventurism maybe to go and and see what war is all about i mean this is really the i am of war i mean i think you know the i am is saying we're always doing the best we can but this how do we wrap our head around this, even though it's war? So we were off air, we were talking a little bit about your understanding of the history of Ukraine and comparing Russian yeah. versus American army. Where, where would you like to start? Well, um, I want to, well, maybe start by saying, so I am, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about, about a lot of aspects that revolve around Ukraine right now and the conflict. But I also, I think I want to start by saying we are seeing unprecedented misinformation circulating around this, this conflict on both sides, on, on, you know, pro-Russian side, on pro-Ukrainian side, pro-Western forces side. So um, when you invited me to talk about this situation tonight, I really wanted to make a point to 
uh, uh, not get on any sort of personal platform here on my beliefs of what's going on, but I really want to try and give some just maybe objective information out for people who are trying to follow along, but you switch to one news source, it says one thing, another said another, everyone's saying everything else on Facebook. So maybe just starting with a baseline understanding of the broad history of Ukraine and the general territory. Um, and I think the first thing to, to understand about Ukraine is that it is, it's known as the breadbasket of Europe, right? So it is an extremely fertile land that yields uh, uh, agriculturally uh, a, a gross, you know, overt amount uh, that, that, uh, that is very sought after by uh, basically any large force that has happened upon it throughout history. Um, so where does the Russian connection come in? Well, that actually comes in from uh, uh, Norse people, uh, Scandinavians, uh, known as Rus. You know, we might associate them with Vikings. That's kind of a very specific term, Viking, but it is these Viking people that sort of migrated from the Scandinavians uh, area in around the ninth century and found this very fertile land and started intermingling with uh, the people that were already there. So that's sort of the first example that you have of a large hegem hegemonic force coming in and uh, mixing their culture in with the local culture and sort of taking over. Next instance of that is you have is the, the Golden Horde, which is the Mongolian uh, takeover of Asia and most of Europe, a lot of Europe in the 13th through 16th century. So you have these Mongolians coming into the to Ukraine, the Ukrainian region, as it's, you know, sort of colloquially known. Um, and so their culture gets imposed on these on these people now. And later on down, you have the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, they come in about 300 years later, uh, after the Mongols have sort of collapsed their empire. That's another power vacuum that's left in this very fertile breadbasket for the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the most important thing about the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is this is where you're getting the quote unquote, Western European influence in the region. Okay, as this is happening, uh, what will become the Russians, they're now in Moscow right now. And they're just the, you know, they're the Rus people at this point. And Moscow is still very much influenced by Mongolian culture. So this is the, so the, the, the 17th century, 16th, 17th century is when you're first seeing this divide and this clashing of what we known as Western and Eastern European influence, right? And that's just the beginning, you know, then now going into uh, uh, later on, you have the, uh, uh, the Cossack culture, which uh, maybe a lot of people are familiar with that term, but don't quite know what it is. And Cossack culture, it, it can parallel what we understand about Vikings in that a Viking was a very specific job, if you will, it was a someone who went out and raided and, and sought land, it wasn't everyone, you know, a it's Cossack. like a verb, right? Yes, right, to go Viking, to go, uh, yeah, exactly. So Cossacks was originally from a term for free people, bandits, people that live in these ungovernable territory that's the Ukrainian territory. They have this history of autonomy and they have this history of, of people coming in and trying to force their government systems on them and them bucking against that. It's the birthplace of modern anarchy. 
um, which comes a little later. So these Cossack people, you know, the Cossacks later on into the 19th and 20th century, they get divided. Some of them go to support Imperial Russia. Some of them go to support the Bolshevik uh, that will come to be the communists. Um, oh God, so look, and maybe something that, 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 that is becoming evident is how very complicated and intertwined um, not too distant politics are in this region. Um, and this all feeds into um, uh, World War II. And in World War II, you know, you have, again, you have these two powers, you have fascism and communism, both vying for the people and the land of Ukraine. And you have instances, like many other places in World War II, where people that were suffering under a current invading force looked for another power to help them. And in some situations, that power was a fascist power. You know, it, it, it happened uh, throughout Europe. And I think that we need to be careful about judging um, the type of collaborations that the type of, you know, deals that people made uh, literally when their backs are against the wall. And I mean this on both sides of the house. And I think this is a very, another very important thing uh, that leads into, you know, the IM regarding the Ukraine, regarding, you know, uh, you know, is it, it's, you have one side saying, well, it's full of Nazis. And you have another side saying, well, you know, communists are invading. And, and uh, I think the answer to both of those are yes and no, you know, um, there are extremist forces uh, that have been able to take hold in Ukraine because people have had to turn to them out of desperation for defense. Raise up, Italian. Yeah, there, that, that's a very uh, famous example. Yeah. Which uh, example is that? So uh, from what I know is that there was, there was a ultranationalist militia group called Azov Battalion that has been like formally inducted into the Ukrainian military. Yes. And uh, yeah, that is true. And they are often pointed to as, as an example of uh, making a general statement about uh, Ukraine being a, you know, right wing uh, uh, nationalist uh, fascist you know, government and country and nation. Um, with the Azov Battalion, that's, again, this is something that I am hesitant to go down too deep in before I start saying things that I don't know are misinformation or information. But, you know, you definitely do have people out there arguing that they were brought into the fold of government supervision for that reason to say basically so they could you know people could sort of keep an eye on what they were doing you know instead of them being this rogue force that's an argument i'm but you know i, so, I can't say <laughs> so so let me let me try to understand and clarify this so the the bread basket i mean the fact that it's a bread basket in and of itself is a very appealing resource to have that's a huge value and so other groups would want to take that or at least have access to it. Or, you know, if it's not being shared, then they're going to take it and do something with it. So 
and 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 the Ukraine has sort of been in this position for a thousand years. Sounds like yeah. it's the Vikings and then the Mongols and then the Cossacks. And so is the Ukraine and then and then was it was Ukraine part of the, the Soviet Union at some point? Uh, yeah, yes, they were. Um, right. Yep. And and so the Soviet Union at that point was a collection of countries. And then my understanding is that under, I think it was Reagan and Gorbachev, it collapsed. The Soviet Union collapsed. And then it was Russia. And then all the states, if you will, became their own independent country. Yes. And right. just geographically, my understanding is that the Ukraine borders directly on Russia. Right. And so does that, do you think, from, from your experience in the military, would that then create either a target or a concern or a tension, depending on, on the relationship between these two countries, if, if they're bordering each other? Sort of turn tribe. into a sort of turn into a tug of war, though, hasn't it? Well, um, it's it's. I think it it's fair, maybe a little more accurate to say it's an identity crisis. Okay. Um, you know, because basically, so maybe this would be a good time to transition to more to talking about uh, Putin. Yes. Um, okay. So, I want to preface this by saying that a lot of this information that I have, uh, I have someone who's close to me who uh, was in the CIA, a career CIA uh, agent, um, served in Russia uh, in the 90s, um, went on later to become a, a station chief in Europe uh, and uh, retire. Um, and he actually had dinner with Putin uh, mm. back in the day, back when uh, Putin was, was working for Russian intelligence. Um, and, uh, the, this, the, the CIA person, they, uh, you know, they, they majored in Russian, uh, their, their specialty was Russian history. Um, and so that's sort of, so the bead that they have on Putin is basically, um, he's been planning this for over 20 years. You know, this, anyone that is in the intelligence community that has been monitoring the situation saw this as an inevitability that Russia was going to invade Ukraine because Russia, people and Russians, Putin among them, believe that Ukraine is part of Russia and that it was separated as a, uh, a device to break the power, you know, of, of Eastern Europe in favor of Western Europe. And Ukraine is edging closer and closer towards European Union uh, to joining them, which uh, one major thing that Putin fears out of that is a cultural revolution within Ukraine. That's that's one of the main concerns, you know, that they will become culturally more like the West than the East and just provide, you know, add to that downfall. Um, he basically what this landed in is a failed intel on Putin's part. That's why Ukraine became such a mess because it was his idea to invade and 48 hours later have a whole lockdown of the entire country. And that's what everyone else would thought was gonna happen because 
uh, Russian army relies, revely on, relies heavily on the railroad system. And because Ukraine borders Russia, they are covered in borders with railroad tracks. Um, mm. And uh, so, yeah, the whole, the whole neighbor, you know, right, that, that was a major part. I want to come back to this idea that, that you raised at the end, that, that people thought it was just going to be done, that mm-hmm. the, the Russians would come in and because they're they're huge compared to Ukraine, I mean they're they're massive, uh, and the expectation on the, this horrible expectation was that this was just going to be done. They were just going to come and, and take a country. Mission accomplished. Right. So, so first of all, why why would people think that? And then we can get into hopefully comparing strategies or the army or. Well, I think that uh, it's. Well, A, especially us in the West, it's sort of what we're used to seeing, you know, I, ever since like Desert Storm. I mean, anytime a large force has gone in to, you know, take care of whatever they're going to take care of in a much smaller force, uh, you know, we're used to modern technology and planes and drones and tanks. And, and we just conceive of this, you know, this blitzkrieg developed by the by the nazis uh this lightning war and uh that's i think just kind of what we're used to um but it was uh uh i'm gonna paraphrase this quote because i wasn't prepared to say it but it general pershing who was a the uh general of the army in world war one uh said something along the lines of uh infantry wins battles logistics wins wars so this is really the key difference here this is the 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 logistics of the russian army is is really the crux of of why we're in the situation we're in that and the uh civilian reaction of ukraine to the russian invasion which um essentially putin believed that he was going to be seen as a liberator to most of the country that People were going to come in here, you know, with hugging the soldiers and helping them out. And, um, you know, I think anyone who has seen any five minutes of the war has seen that's very much not the case, that he has met staunch resistance on the civilian front, which uh, I can definitely speak from experience that uh, in modern warfare, when your objective is not to just clear a city block of all life and roll through a big army will be slowed to a crawl with civilian uh, resistance and insurgency it's and one of the main things is that they're attacking the logistic supplies of the russian army you know um uh so the way the russian army is set up though is so with them they regiment their supply chain. All right, I'm, I'm going to try to see if I can. So, so what, what does that mean to regiment the supply right. chain? So what that means, basically, so for the higher ups, right, the, the officers back in Moscow or whatever, uh, the, the guys in charge, they determine how a resupply is going to work during this operation. You know, say, for example, they say, all right, in three days, you're going to be at this checkpoint. We're going to have 40 cases of fuel and 20 boxes of ammunition. Then at this check- checkpoint, four days later, you're going to get your food and your water. But this is, you know, I'm making this up for example. Yeah. But 
So that is logistics leading strategy. So then the lower down, the boots on the ground have to plan accordingly and they have to meet this, these expectations of this whole timeline or else everything starts falling apart. The way the American army works, it's different because uh, uh, we uh, have strategy leading logistics. We have the people planning the operations on the ground saying, well, we're gonna need this, this, and this before we even set off. And then in four days, we're gonna need this, this, and this, and this. And the higher ups, they adjust that maybe to budgeting or you know their own supply demands, but that is how the system works. So there's a lot more uh, independent thought by the units moving about. Um, that's one major thing, the logistics so, is huge. So, so let, let's just stick with that for a minute. So, so how does that change the way an army basically works and functions? I mean, that sounds like a huge philosophical well, difference. Well, and, and so what experts are believe now is that essentially this invading force got loaded down with a lot of bullets and uh, not a lot of fuel or food or anything to sustain. So basically, uh, the Russian army works where uh, they uh, an invading force basically has enough supply to last three to four days, maybe, um, because they're thinking they need more ammunition, more bullets to keep the drive going. So then, then they secure the area, and that's when you you know they can bring in their you know support. It's not like Americans, we have a big technology advantage. We have, you know, technologically like air superiority, um, navigation systems. Most of the Russian army is using paper maps right now. Um, wow. So we can get resupplied much more on an improvisational thing. Um, but as soon as these guys get bogged down, as soon as they run out of fuel, what good is a tank? You know, as soon as you run out of food, what good is a soldier? Uh, so the machine just starts breaking down and you have these resistance fighters purposely going after fuel trucks you know and 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 networking themselves to 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 attack soft targets that really just uh, uh grind the machine of war to a halt and, and do you think part of this was the sort of misconception of putin who thought well you know we're going to go in and the ukrainians are going to say great we're really glad you're here which means we don't need to have the resupply we don't need to have these sort of logistics in place because it's only going to be two days exactly yeah his, his idea he thought that the biggest thing he would have to do would get into kiev and set up a puppet government as soon as he toppled the first one and then the dominoes would start falling in line um and now he it's seeming like he there's being backed and back more into a corner you know because not only is are the people that were against russia in the first place really uh <laughs> getting angrier and angry and less patient with putin but the oligarchs back in russia that were supporting him are now kind of stamping their feet and looking at their watches and saying what is the hold up and where are we going to go from here because these oligarchs are not you know, these aren't the Russian oligarchs that have, you know, villas in Italy and, and all this. They are very centrally sort of invested in Russian culture and, and Russian assets and et cetera. Uh, but now this is, you know, so they're kind of protected from sanctions. But now just the the attrition of of Ukraine right now is what's weighing on them and sort of, you know, losing face by this becoming a big, you know, 
cluster mess. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it, again, to, to bring the IM into this, um, it, it, it goes again and again and again that human beings just want to feel valued. I mean, th th this is who we are. And so when one person or country tries to increase their value by decreasing somebody else's, we shouldn't be surprised that the other person or country is going to respond in kind. No way, man. You're not going to take my value. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take yours. And, and that's, that's been going on for so long. I, we keep doing it over and over. And I know there are a lot of people who are not listening to this who will say, well, they won't say anything because they're not listening. But that's the point. We need to be able to do something different. Here we are once again in this position where the same thing is going on. One country wants the breadbasket in this case of another, but it's more than the breadbasket, isn't it? It's, it's the strategic position because if Russia can take the Ukraine, it's a little closer to Europe. And is that the big plan? I mean, we don't know what the big plan is, but it's just, it's mind boggling that here we are 2022 and we're potentially on the brink of another world war. If I could uh, amend your saying about one country invading another, I think it's one handful of men invading another. Okay. Because I, I think it's very easy to fall into the team sport of this is Ukraine versus Russia. Russia bad, Ukraine good. The, the Russian people didn't ask for this. Right. And what we're and already we're punishing them. We're we're imposing sanctions which aren't going to hit the sanctions only ever kill the poor and vulnerable i'm sorry that's my soapbox statement but we're cutting off netflix you joking right <laughs> right um yeah, yeah liquor stores throwing out russian it's freedom fries yep yep i made i i <laughs> i was just talking with uh with with nina about that that phenomenon Post 9-11. Yeah, Freedom Fries. Yep. I'm um, oh, sorry. What, what's the Freedom Fries reference? Oh, so uh, when Bush was saying you're with us or against us, uh, I forget the whoever was French president at the time pretty much said, that's that's dumb. You're dumb. Mm. And oh, right, right. And so many American restaurants change their menus from french fries to freedom fries <laughs> right right no I, I i i agree tom i mean it's it's not a country um it's maybe not even a tribe it is one individual to the next and yet um individuals i mean this is part of what what you started talking about patrick i mean depending on which news station you listen to you're going to have a particular view and opinion. Uh, and that's why, that's why I'm trying to get people to think about the I am for a moment, because it, it takes us and generalizes, no army pun intended there, but, but basically saying we are one group. We, you know, we, we really all want the same thing. 
So why do we have to keep taking from one person to get what we want? The I am is saying, whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. And part of that is because then everyone is safer. Then we can keep it frontal and not go limbic. We don't have to activate that fight, flight, freeze response. Respect leads to value and value leads to trust. And it is that trust that we need to be able to have the discussions about our differences. Well, how mm. can this be the best someone can do? Remember, because the I am is saying we're always at our current maximum potential, but if we don't like it, we can change it. And this is something we need to change at a global, global level. This is also like an, an opportunity for people to realize that this is this is happening in a lot, a lot of places. Yes. And, you know, it, it was a bit of a, it's very disappointing seeing so many people just completely out themselves saying, this is the first major war between civilized nations. In, in mm. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of, <clears throat> I would say, uh, people telling on themselves, um, rushing to aid one country. wait wait was that a pun was that a pun was it rushing it is, to aid sorry well, it is now <laughs> i i but you were I, saying I, but it's true they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, all this aid is coming i mean people say well it's, it was because they're white so yeah. let's you know let's uh oh god it's crazy and and yemen you know yeah yeah we are we are bombing yemen uh, we are starving Afghanistan. Um, we are condemning uh, Palestine. Uh, but we have very hard opinions on Ukraine and very definite opinions on Ukraine. Hmm. So it, it's, it's um, illuminating something for us. Mm -hmm. right? And that is, I guess, our bias, not just our perspective. You know, early on in the show, Patrick, you you said something about every experience is unique. Talking about war, I think, and could yeah. you talk more about that? Yeah, I guess you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm thinking. I was thinking a lot about these uh, these Russian soldiers that are that are going in. You know, that are act actively invading. Um, Ukraine now and how uh, yeah I can't 100% confirm that all these stories are true but you know uh, Russian soldiers we have videos of them uh, you know surrendering to Ukrainian mothers and grandmothers who feed them and give them tea and, and um, uh, these soldiers claiming that they had no idea what they were involved with they, they thought you know some of them thought they were liberating. Some of them thought this was, you know, training. Um, you know, there are there are conscripts within the Russian army. You know, draft drafted uh, soldiers. Um, yeah, and I get. <laughs> I don't know. I just. Uh, I mean, very much. I think to what you were talking about, uh, Thomas. Just us us generalizing. Um, one uniformed military as as each one of these soldiers, you know, are the ardent, you know, uh, diehard uh, 
Putin loyalists that we that we you know think they all are and and just what what people will do when they're don't think they have any other option you know that that people will pick up a gun and fight for a cause um for all sorts of reasons for all sorts of reasons for why they need to survive um i don't know i guess i just get overwhelmed <laughs> trying to break down that 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 idea but just that the uh people can find themselves in a situation for any number of of reasons yeah. Oh. I mean, I'm glad that you're bringing it down to this personal level. I mean, it must be terrifying to, to be a soldier, to be, you know, potentially killed. And that, that's, that's what people are putting you in. They're putting you in that position. You go in and you either kill someone or you be killed. Is that, am I way too simplistic with this, Patrick? Nope. I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, I think it's overwhelming in its simplicity um, that nothing else matters. You realize all of a sudden nothing else matters except for the next 30 seconds or two minutes or uh, whatever. And, and, and also, you know, most of the rest of the world does not view their soldiers with the same amount of of patriotic support as Americans do. I think that's another thing that Americans don't understand. Like a lot of, you know, when in Russia and in a lot of our neighboring countries, uh, UK, joining the military is kind of, you didn't have any other option, you know? Mm. And, and people are like, why would you, you know, do that unless you were facing jail time? Um, and it's these, and that's kind of the point is to have undesirables that are expendable, you know, in your armed forces. So if they are, do the bodies start counting up, you know, people don't really mind too much. Well, some people must, right? Hmm. Some people must mind the person who's waiting at home to find out whether their son or daughter or. Yeah. Or well, not, not, not the voices that are heard, I guess. No, no. The other thing is, you know, I, I'm just thinking what this must be like for a soldier where their life is on the line, their brain is going to be producing all this cortisol and their adrenaline and, and those things block other chemicals. We know that, that cortisol blocks dopamine, which is a chemical of pleasure, mm -hmm. and cortisol blocks oxytocin, which is the chemical of trust. So under these stress conditions, which we are under globally now, it's very hard to feel pleasure. And who do you trust? And I wonder whether this is part of what we're also looking at um, with Ukraine, but also with the division we have here in the United States. You know, with COVID was, was, was a common enemy. You know, somehow tribes need a common enemy. We could have made COVID that common enemy. You know, unfortunately, we still need a common enemy, but we could have made COVID that and come together as a global community to say, we're being invaded by this incredibly small thing that kills people. What do we do as a community to come together around that? But that opportunity may have been missed. So 
we're we're coming to the end of the show. The, the I am approach, as you know, has has two truths: the four domains, the home, the social, the biological, and the I see how I see myself, how I think other people see me interact. Because of these interactions, a small change can have a big effect. So, Patrick, what small change can you recommend to our listeners so that we can manage this? Well, I think I'll go back to the thing I said the first time I was on here, which is I would encourage people to actively listen with an intent to change their perspective. Mm. Yeah. I hope people are doing that. And, and I, I hope people who are listening to this show will share it with other people who will then share it with others so that we can all change our perspective and realize how much we have in common right now. We have so much at risk and yet so much opportunity to do something to bring ourselves together. The second truth of the I am, everyone's got an I am. Everyone is interested through their IC domain in what you think or feel about them which has an effect on their biological domain because you know it feels differently when you feel respected or disrespected. You're part of someone's home or social domain, which means you control no one, you influence everyone, you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Patrick Troy Brand, what kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be a, a pillar of support for anyone around me who needs it. And I sure hope that that becomes a model for everyone, for everyone. You know, we're, we're under a lot of stress globally. Um, but one of the best ways to reduce your stress is to help reduce somebody else's stress. Because mm. as soon as you do that, you increase your value and you remind them of theirs, which is what we want. And as soon as you remind someone of their value, it increases oxytocin, it decreases cortisol, and you begin to trust you're safer. We can create a safer world by simply wondering why people do what they do and approaching them in a way with respect that leads to value. And then they can trust you with their perspective. And then we can have a discussion. We can have a discussion, even though I don't agree with someone. It doesn't mean I don't respect them. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on again. You are, you are one of our repeat guests, and we really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for that and for everything you've done for us. Thank Night. you, Dr. Joe. Thanks. Thank you. Night, Tom. Night, Night. Night.